Hello and welcome to Halfwit History. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. And this is a show where we talk about the upcoming week, but a long time ago. And sometimes not so long ago. And how long or not so long ago are we today, Kylie? Pretty long ago. Oh, pretty yeah, long we're ago. Yeah, we're going to take a little uh, trip in the Wayback Machine. <laughs> uh, so this week, I'm going to be talking about a very old book. An old book? Yes, which seems fitting since I just did Book Fair Week. That's true. That was not planned in any way, shape, or form. Do you feel old and haggard after Book Fair Week? Yes. Kylie came back so exhausted every day. And not every day was actually the book fair. It was just kind of going on. And then there was one day that was actually big book fair day. Yeah, like... Kylie was... Zero energy when she got home. Well, I also didn't get home until like almost 10 o'clock. Yeah, it was bad. It was a late night. It was an exhausting night. Well, it was Um, also paired with like a parent day or something, right? Yeah, we had like an art show and the book fair and a barbecue and like that kind of stuff happening. Um, So there were a lot of people. There were a lot of parents, um, a lot of other teachers and stuff just wandering around. Um, It was really, really fun, but it was just very tiring. So tell me about this old book that you probably couldn't have purchased at your book fair. Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> okay, so this old book that I'm going to be talking about is called the Diamond Sut- Sutra. Sutra? Sutra. 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 Yep. When you said this old book, it immediately reminded me of this old house filmed by Bob Vila. It was an old show. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. That, that was specifically <laughs> – this is a very big tangent, but that was specifically the um, – uh, what what was it? The Home Improvement was the sitcom. Yeah, was a spoof on this old house, and oh. the guy who played Tim Allen's character's um, like rival was uh-huh. Bob Vila, the host of this old house. Oh my god! Oh, oh, okay. And fun fact: Bob Vila lived in Hudson. Oh, yep. I did not know that. Yep, that is very cool. Anyway, Anywho, so now that tangent. we've already had a little fun fact. Uh, non sequitur here. What's our this old book? <laughs> so this old book was called the Diamond Sutra, uh, not to be confused with any other type of sutra books. Oh. Anyway, on May eleventh, eight sixty eight B.C. No, A.D. <laughs> I can date. It's fine. Um, you can't AD. date. We're married. <laughs> That's not what I meant. Uh, is C.E. the more appropriate term than A.D. now? I feel like I think that is. Okay. So on May 11th, 868 CE, the Diamond Sutra, the world's oldest surviving and dated printed book, was printed in Chinese and made into a scroll. Oh. Yep. So that is. So it is a very old book. It is a very old book. Yes. Is it a book? It's a scroll. And we're going to get to it. Okay. And it is a book. And I'll explain why. I'm ready. In a while. In a bit. We're going to talk about the book itself first. And then we're going to talk about some of the. Uh, logistics of making a book. And you are going to see my nerd come out real hard in this one. So. Oh, boy. Yeah. Goody, 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 goody. So, in Sanskrit, the title, the Diamond Sutra, is actually the Vajra Shadeki Prajnaparaminta Sutra. And I'm not going to say wow. that again because otherwise I'm going to murder it even worse. So, it can be translated roughly as the Vajra Cutter Perfection of Wisdom Sutra or the Perfection of Wisdom text that cuts like a thunderbolt. Oh, uh, I like that. My next comment is, that's a fallout boy-length title if I've ever heard one. <laughs> <laughs> so in English, shortened forms like the Diamond Sutra and the Vajra Sutra are common and 
I'm sure you can imagine why. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So the title relies on the power of the Vajra, a diamond or thunderbolt, but also an abstract idea for like a powerful weapon. Um, Something that can cut things like a metaphor for the type of wisdom that cuts and shatters illusions to get to the ultimate reality. Ooh. So as you can probably guess from that very long sentence, we're in for a little bit of a philosophical episode today. I'm ready. Yeah. Also, like, normally I'm the one who would do the philosophical episodes and you would go all glassy-eyed, so I can't believe it's my (laughs) turn, finally. I went so glassy-eyed writing these notes. Good. Not gonna lie. (laughs) (laughs) So the exact date of the Diamond Sutra was written in is unknown, but arguments have been made for the 2nd and the 5th centuries CE. The first Chinese translation dates to the early 5th century, but by this point, the 4th or 5th century monks seem to have already authored some authoritative commentaries on its contents, which implies that it was probably written before then, right? Yeah. So the Diamond Sutra is a Mahayana Buddhist sutra from the genre of the Prajna Paraminta, which means Perfection of Wisdom Sutras. So the Mahayana Buddhism developed in India around the 1st century BCE and is the largest of the three main existing branches of Buddhism today. Sutras in Buddhism are canonical scriptures, many of which are regarded as records of the oral teaching of Gautama Buddha. This differs from Hinduism, which also uses sutras, but those sutras are a compilation of short aphoristic statements where each sutra is some sort of like short rule around which teachings of ritual, like philosophy, grammar, or a field of knowledge are made. So think like like parables in um, like Christianity. Right. So the Diamond Sutra is one of the most influential Mahayana sutras in East Asia, being particularly prominent within the Chan or Zen tradition. Uh, Early translations into a number of languages have been found in locations across Central and East Asia, suggesting that the text was widely studied and translated. Um, In addition to Chinese translations, translations of the text and commentaries were made into Tibetan, and translations, elaborations, and paraphrases all survive in a number of Central Asian languages. So this was distributed pretty widely across, like, Asia itself. So this diamond sutra gives rise to a culture of artwork, sutra veneration, and commentaries in East Asian Buddhism. And by the end of the Tang Dynasty in 907 in China, there were over 80 commentaries written on it, um, of which only 32 survive. Copying and recitation of the Diamond Sutra was a widespread devotional practice, so kind of like people like recite Bible passages today. Um, And stories attributing miraculous powers to these acts are recorded in Chinese, Japanese, Tibetan, and Mongolian sources. It wasn't until the Taoist monk Wang Yanlu was trying to restore statues and paintings in what's now known as Cave 16 of the Mogao Caves at Dunhuang, There, he found the yet undiscovered cache of thousands of ancient manuscripts, many of which relate to early Chinese Buddhism, including our book for today, The Diamond Sutra. Many of those manuscripts were sold to a British archaeologist, Oral Stein, in 907, and it's also the first known creative work with an explicit public domain dedication. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, so it has a colophon at the end that states that it was created, quote, for universal free distribution. So, like, the first public domain book as yeah, that's well really as neat. like the oldest dated printed book which it's, is it's funny cool. that they would have thought of that be in like a you know non-capitalistic society like way back when yeah where it was just like hey we just want to make sure that people know that this is for everyone mm-hmm. and just make copies of it just yeah. go yeah like it should be made freely available and accessible which is 
kind of what public libraries are trying to do now with a lot of things. So it's very cool. So what does this very cool text say that holds such power and persuasion? Well, it contains a conversation between the Buddha and a senior monk named Sabuti. The major themes are Anatman, the not-self, the emptiness of all phenomena, the liberation of all beings without attachment, and the importance of speaking and teaching the diamond Setra itself. So there's a lot. <laughs> um, it begins with Sabuti asking the Buddha how should one who has set out on the path to awakening proceed and control their mind. The dialogue that follows focuses on the nature of the, quote, perfection of insight and the nature of ultimate reality, which, according to Buddha, is illusory and empty. So basically meaningless. Well, I don't think it's meaningless. Um, Just be—I mean, maybe there's other things that you're seeing in there that lead you towards that. Mm. But I know that um, in certain Asian cultures, the concept of emptiness is actually the concept of everything, not Mm. the concept of nothing. Oh, okay. So, like, if— a lot of Asian, or not a lot of, but some other Asian cultures, when they say, when they think about emptiness, they're thinking about the nothing around you that makes you you. Because mm-hmm. if there wasn't nothing around you, then everything would be you and nothing would be you. It's like a container is almost how they view emptiness as. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think this is along those lines. Um, and I, I mean, like, I wrote the notes a little bit ago. Yeah. So, like, I'm trying to remember because I, I tried to make it, like, the most concise version that I could because I was glassy-eyed, yeah. drooling. I was very confused. Yeah, I, um, I, I think <laughs> the concept of emptiness in this context is if there wasn't emptiness, everything would be one thing and nothing would be individual. Um, yeah, so I think we might touch on that in a second. Okay. Now that I'm, like, looking ahead. Um, so, this nature of ultimate reality is illusory and empty. The Buddha uses negation to point out the emptiness of phenomena, merit, and the Dharma, which are the Buddha's teaching, as well as the stages of enlightenment and the Buddha himself. Japanese Buddhologist Hajime Nakamura calls this negation the, quote, logic of not. The Buddha is generally thought to be saying to Subhuti, unlearn his preconceived limited notions of the nature of reality. Uh, So, like, unlearn what you think you know to learn what you should know, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, So, emphasizing that all phenomena are ultimately illusory, he teaches that true enlightenment cannot be grasped until one has set aside attachment to them in any form. Another reason for using negation is that language can manifest concepts which can lead to attachment to those concepts. So, like, when you think about the concept of something, like, you think about something as mine, yep, you form an attachment to it. Whereas if it's just a thing that exists, there's no, like... No possession. Yeah, no possession. Yeah. yeah. He teaches that true enlightenment cannot be grasped until one has set aside attachment to them in any form. Another reason for using negation is that language can manifest concepts which lead to attachment to those concepts. But true wisdom is seeing that nothing is fixed or stable. So ideas like, I have reached enlightenment, would never even enter an enlightened person's mind because there would be no idea of seizing upon a self or seizing upon, like, a living being, a soul, or, like, a person. So, like, that sense of self wouldn't even enter the equation to be like, I'm enlightened. Right. It would just be, you exist. Yeah. As soon as you start thinking I'm enlightened, you're no longer enlightened. Right. You're you're yeah. undoing yeah. the teaching. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So on that note, if anyone out there is ha- also having trouble wrapping their brain around this, then just know that you are so not alone. 
I read this. I read like the Diamond Switcher, like the whole thing, like 10 times before I could even start to write notes because I was just so overwhelmed. <laughs> but that's the teaching of the Diamond Switcher in a nutshell. Nutshell, yeah. yeah. Um, but now I want to talk about the real reason I chose this topic. Oh, layers. Books. The books. Books. I love books. Big books, little books, picture books, coloring books, all the books. <laughs> uh, shocking, I know, uh, since I'm a librarian, right? Yep. Uh, so fun fact, the history of the the study of the history of books didn't become an acknowledged ac- academic discipline until the 1980s. Wow. Yeah. Very, um, very recently. Yes. So the key purpose of this study is to demonstrate that the book as an object and not just the text contained within it is actually a conduit of interaction between readers and words. Oh, okay. So your medium is important is what the, yes. what's going yeah. on there. So prior to the evolution of the printing press, each text was a unique handcrafted valuable article that was personalized through the design features that were chosen by the scribe, the owner, the bookbinder, and the illustrator, if there was one. A very quick, uh, you know, side note in modern day, we actually experienced this yesterday because it was um, free comic book day. Oh, yeah. And when we were talking about it, and we we're like, oh, this is very cool and everything. And they're like, yeah, just, you know, don't participate in the digital free comic day because it kind of defeats the point. And it's like, yes, that this is kind of following along the same ethos of like, they are people who very much believe that the physical medium of comics is an important thing to maintain. Yeah. And I mean, as as a former archivist, I feel very strongly about this particular topic because a huge part of like archival holdings and the reason you preserve paper is because there's all of these very tiny, minute things that happen over time to these documents that you would not be able to see in a digital version. Right. Um. So... There could be, like, a fingerprint or something, or there could be some other sort of, like, something that happened in the corner or, like, charring or something that can tell its own story about the history of that document that you wouldn't get just from a digital version. Right, because it's the story of the document is not the story written on the document. Right, exactly. The analysis of each component part of a book reveals its purpose, where and how it was kept, who read it, ideological and religious beliefs of the period, and whether readers interacted with the text within at all. So, like, a really old book that clearly has never been opened can tell you a lot. Yeah. Um, whereas a book that has clearly been well-loved and is falling apart is also going to tell you a lot about mm-hmm. the contents and stuff. So even a lack of evidence of this kind of nature leaves valuable clues about the nature of that particular book. Um, so, like, value whether it was valued within, like, a family or a society or whatever. But it's fascinating that you can learn so much about a society based on how they interact with written language. The history of the book starts with the development of writing, obviously, and various other inventions like paper and printing, and continues through the modern-day business of book printing. The earliest knowledge society had on the history of books actually predates what would conventionally be called a book today Mm -hmm. and begins with tablets, scrolls, and sheets of papyrus combined into codices. Then hand-bound, expensive, and very elaborate manuscripts appeared in a codex form. These gave way to press-printed volumes, leading to the mass printing of volumes. So, like, mass market paperback, essentially. And, and like, in the beginning, it was so expensive, one, because it was a big process, but two, because, like, the only people who were... Uh, educated enough mm-hmm. at a certain point in history uh, were like monks. Yeah. And they yep. were the only ones who were, you know, intelligent enough to create these manuscripts. It, there was a yep. a level of um, a level of wisdom needed to even start 
yeah, down exactly. information. Yep. Um, and then so with the advancement of technology, we even have digital books and things like audio books. So who knows what the future might bring? And podcasts. And podcasts. Yeah. Us. <laughs> uh, so the basic and most important part of a book is the written word. Uh, this all began with the need to express language with a system of markings. In the history of how writing systems have evolved in human civilizations, more complete writing systems were preceded by proto-writing. So think things like cave drawings, mm-hmm. um, including systems um, of ideographic which means like symbols to convey an idea. Yep. Or early mnemonic symbols like a mnemonic device that helps you remember something. Yep. Um, so that is like what's considered proto-writing. True writing, in which the content of a linguistic utterance is encoded so that another reader can reconstruct with a pretty good degree of accuracy the exact thing that was written down, is a later development. The earliest uses of writing in ancient Sumeria were to document agricultural produce and create contracts. Um, But soon writing became used for purposes like finances, religion, government, and law. These uses supported the spread of these social activities, their associated knowledge, and the extension of centralized power. Yeah. So writing then became the basis of knowledge institutions like libraries, schools, universities, and scientific and disciplinary research. So... Started as cave drawings has now become like basically what you need to you need to have and know to be powerful. Also, just like central to humanity. Yes. In, yeah. In general. Yeah. Just very much. Our, the reason that we as a species have been able to progress is a lot part of writing. Yeah. Um. So when we talk about written language or writing, we need to understand a little bit about different writing systems. So with writing systems, one has to usually understand something of the associated spoken language co- to comprehend the text. A.K.A. if you don't understand Portuguese, you can't read Portuguese, mm-hmm. right? Um, in contrast, symbolic systems like information signs, paintings, maps, and mathematics often don't require any prior knowledge of a spoken language. So think something like the universal no symbol that's a circle with a line through it. You also says, have no. kind of like uh, the half steps here of like, you know, Japanese kanji. Mm-hmm. Where you can uh, you can understand what it is attempting to convey based on understanding of the proto symbols that it evolved from, mm-hmm. but kanji have multiple meanings, and I'm assuming it's the same with uh, Chinese characters because Probably. kanji is taken from Chinese characters. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those things where it's kind of halfway between symbology and written language, like you're talking about, right? Yeah, because. It represents a written language and many different things, but you can also just look at it and intuitively kind of guess at what it's talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't. (laughs) But like once you understand a little bit of where it's coming from, I've I've just been it's on the brain because I've been trying to do it because we're planning on a Japan trip. Um, But like the kanji for resting is the kanji for man Mm -hmm. sitting next to the kanji for tree. Okay, so it's like a person under a tree. Right. Yeah, that's, I mean, yeah. Um, I mean, you would sort of have to know what the, the man and kanji and tree but, symbol meant, but, that but yeah. evolves from the proto-language of mm-hmm. the sim- symbology that everyone would in- intuitively understand. Right. It's a slightly different version of that yeah. symbolism. Yeah, it's a little bit more complex, it, but it's not, yeah. yeah. But it, it makes it closer to, you know, a prescriptive language. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is very cool. So writing systems have three integral requirements. So the first thing is writing has to be complete. 
It has to have a purpose or some sort of meaning to it, and a point has to be made or communicated in the text. Second, all writing systems must have some sort of symbols which can be made on some sort of surface, whether physical or digital. Mm -hmm. And then last, the symbols used in the writing system must mimic spoken words or speech in order for communication to be possible. Yeah, so like you wouldn't consider uh, codes to be language. Right. Because it's not, you're you're not going to be speaking in code. You're just going to be using symbology to reflect it into language. Exactly. Yep. Um, so how old is writing? How old is it? (laughs) Some notational signs used next to images of animals might have appeared as early as the Upper Paleolithic in Europe around 35,000 BCE. Yep. And it might be the earliest proto-writing. Several symbols were used in combination as a way to convey seasonal behavioral information about animals that people were hunting. Mm -hmm. So they were conveying an idea through this, you know, symbol to help others be able to understand what was happening in the area. Mm-hmm. The origins of writing are more generally attributed to the start of the pottery phase of the Neolithic, which is around 6,400 BC. Um, and this is when clay tokens were used to record specific amounts of livestock or commodities. So like tokens to like record a, a certain amount of some particular thing and convey that to other people. I'm thinking like pre-abacus almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has that kind of like um, prior to like counting yeah. on an abacus kind of feel, yeah. Here, here is a physical object that you can use to represent a number of things. Yeah, exactly. So the tokens were then progressively replaced by flat tablets on which signs were recorded with a stylus, which is really funny because we still call... Like the thing that we use on a like tablet. digital tablets and stuff, a stylus. And I don't stylus, know why yep. I find that so funny, but I do. Um, actual writing is first recorded in Uruk, an ancient city in Sumer, uh, which was then Mesopotamia and is present day Iraq. Yep. Um, at the end of the fourth millennium BCE. And if you don't know what that is, I had to look it up. It means four, the period between 4000 and 3001 BCE, where we essentially have very little amount of history because it wasn't recorded. Yes. Yeah. So the very beginning of hopefully this idea of recording history. Wow. You went back all the way. This is the longest long ago. I know. <laughs> I have found the beginning. Yep. We we couldn't do this show without the longest long ago. I know. Well, we had to get there eventually, right? <laughs> oh, if only it was episode 100. That would have been fun. Oh, nuts. Anyway. This first actual writing is recorded in Uruk, and soon after it became, it spread to various parts of the Near East. According to an ancient Sumerian epic poem called Enmerkar and the Lord of Arata, uh, circa 1800 BC, quote, because the messenger's mouth was heavy and he couldn't repeat the message, the Lord of Kalaba patted some clay and put words on it like a tablet. Until then, there had been no putting words on clay. So the beginning of written language is in this story um, is attributed to this Lord of Calaba, but there's, you know, it's a it's a fable. Yeah. It's like Homer yep. and the Iliad and everything. So um, writing was long thought to have been invented in a single civilization, a theory that was called monogenesis, meaning that writing had originated in Sumer and then spread all over the world through cultural diffusion. According to this theory, the concept of representing language by written marks, though not necessarily the specifics of how such a symbol would work, was passed on by traders or merchants traveling between geographical regions. However, the discovery of scripts of ancient Mesoamerica far away from Middle Eastern sources proved that writing had been invented more than once. Ooh, fun. 
Scholars now recognize that writing may have independently developed in at least four ancient civilizations. So Mesopotamia between 3400 and 3100 BCE, Egypt around 3250, China around 1200 BCE, and then the lowland areas of Mesoamerica around 500 BCE. Interesting. Yeah. So it it independently appeared in these different places in a relatively like quick time period. Yeah. Um, like when you think of like the grand scheme of the world and everything, like it was a human pretty... brains were ready for it, and we needed something as society yeah. was evolving. And it just it just shows that like different societies evolved at like similar paces. Well, I think that also has to do with like population size. Just oh, I'm spe- sure, yeah. just speculating, yeah. but like the you go from having small family units and essentially Mm -hmm. that's all you're interacting with to now you're interacting with tribes now you're interacting with villages now you're interacting with cities yeah you need ways to communicate with those people that are not the immediate people in your family unit and i bet when you only had a family unit you could do a lot of things without writing yes but once you get into those bigger like livelihoods and everything you have to have some way of communicating like that yeah yep um so there's a whole lot more information on the development of writing but I'm going to stop here now because my goal is to talk about books. Books, books, But we have books. to know where the writing comes from in order to really, truly appreciate books. Yeah. So back to books. The earliest of what we would now consider a book dates back to Mesopotamia in the 3rd millennium BCE. The calamus, an instrument with a triangular point, was used to inscribe characters in moist clay, and fire was then used to drive the tablets out. At Nineveh, the modern-day city of Mosul, over 20,000 tablets have been found that date from the 7th century BCE. So, like, as far back as the 7th century. Um, this was what we believe was probably an archive or a library of the kings of Assyria, who had workshops of copyists and conservationists at their disposal to prepare and care for and preserve these tablets. Yep. What I would not give to just see that collection, I would sell my soul. It's also interesting to see that societies viewed storage and uh, conservation of books as very important back then. And then immediately go back to the beginning of this episode where you said, oh, it's only really a noted study in modern history in 1980. And like the practice of like archival preservation and, and retaining documents as pertain to like organizations and things is also a pretty recent like actual practice like the idea of actually wanting to keep and preserve for future use these documents is actually pretty pretty recent i mean even in scheme of things even in like my line of work um i always hear from the older engineers all the time that they never cared about how they wrote things or whatever and they still don't a lot of older Mm -hmm. engineers don't care at all shocking but they're they're like it doesn't matter what you do you know someone builds it you make it blah 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 it's fine and all that stuff and it's like no like there's a reason why we need this signed by these type of people there's a reason why we need you to give it to this person when you're done and there's a reason why we have documents that tell us we can't throw these documents away for seven to ten years yeah well i mean like who wants to reinvent the wheel if you already have like exactly how to do it Yep. Already done for you. Like, that seems foolish. But it's funny that, you know, there's, it's so recent mm-hmm. that I have worked with at every single company that I've worked at a lot of people who don't see the value in it yeah. because it wasn't practice when they started. Yep. 
on that depressing note, <laughs> for me at least, uh, fun fact, the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago holds a Sumerian clay tablet inscribed with the text of the poem Inanna and Ibi by the priestess Enhedwana, who was the first author whose name is actually known. So if you have any interest in that, you can go to the University of Chicago to see that clay tablet. That's cool. Which are I'm they, like, they right. going to rename their uh, racist institution? I don't know. Oriental's a racist term. I'm aware. I yep. don't know. <laughs> I didn't know if that was old old naming or still current. Uh well, uh let's let's click on the um lovely little little blue spot. Little link that you've got. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Um hmm. Hmm. Judging by hmm. Kylie's face, uh, Chicago, oh, get no, your act no, together. No, formerly the Orient. Okay. The Institute for the Study of Ancient Cultures, West Asia, and North Africa. That's much better. Formerly the Oriental Institute. Okay. It did not get updated Never. where I was getting my notes from. Never mind, Chicago. You're, you're fine. <laughs> you, you're off our you, list now. You updated in a way that we can accept. <laughs> yep. Anyway, they have this cool clay tablet. <laughs> cool tablet. <laughs> And so, they are oh, moving forward in a nice way. Good job. Good yes. job. Uh, so after clay tablets came papyrus, which is created by extracting the marrow from the stems of papyrus reed. And then following several steps, which uh, include things like humidification, pressing, drying, gluing, and cutting to produce a thick paper-like writing medium. It's possible that it dates as far back as the first dynasty of Egypt. So between the 34th and 30th centuries B.C., However, the first solid evidence that we have is from the account books of King Neferakare Kakai of the 5th Dynasty, so around 2400 BC. So, okay. like, considerably later. Yeah, we, have, we have a very good theory that, we, that there is writing before that, but that's what we have. Right, or, like, the use or of paper. papyrus existed yep. before that. But this is one we know for sure, yeah. Yep. So papyrus books were formed by pasting several sheets of this paper together to form a scroll for a total length of 10 meters or even more. Books were rolled out horizontally. The text occupied one side and then was divided into columns. The title was indicated by a label attached to the cylinder containing the book. Many papyrus texts come from tombs, creepy, where <laughs> prayers and sacred texts were uh, deposited. So things like the Book of the Dead from the early second millennium BCE. So they were like given to these dead people essentially to help ease their passing and that kind of thing. Right. So China was the first to actually produce paper around the first century CE. Prior to that, writing on bone, shells, wood, and silk was all very prevalent. And China's first recognizable book was called the Jianxi or the Jiandu. And they were made of rolls of thin, split, and dried bamboo that was bound together with hemp, silk, or leather. Mm -hmm. The inv invention of paper by making pulp out of mulberry bark is credited to Han court eunuch Kai Lun as early as 105 CE. Woodblock printing, a method already used for printing on cloth, became a very convenient way to reproduce the written word, which was heavily prompted by the need to produce large volumes of Buddhist texts. Mm -hmm. It all comes back to religion, baby. It always does. <laughs> Although there's no exact date known, between 618 and 907 CE, which is like the period of the Tang Dynasty, the first printing of books started in China, which brings us full circle to the Diamond Sutra, which was made using that same woodblock printing an incredibly time-consuming process in which the text has to be printed the it, but by being carved into the woodblock surface. Yep. 
um, and then it would essentially be used as a stamp uh, to stamp the words onto the writing surface medium. So I, but then I mean, you can keep using it, but yeah. like having to actually do all that carving and stuff can be time consuming. But then you obviously eventually get to the point where we have like the Gutenberg press. And we're going to get to the Gutenberg okay. press. <laughs> There's just a very clear line of evolution from yes. what we're looking at here. Yep. So because of this meticulous and time-consuming process that woodblock printing was, uh, Bai Sheng, a key contributor to the history of printing, actually invented the process of movable type printing around 1041, 1048 CE. Bai Sheng developed a printing process in which written text could be copied with the use of formed character types, the earliest types being made of ceramic or clay material. So basically being able to move those pieces around to make new things and yep. being able to just constantly reuse. Um, and this process was later independently invented and then improved upon by Johannes Gutenberg, giving us the Gutenberg Bible and the Gutenberg Press. I told you I'd get there. I was I was right there. I was yeah, right there you were with right you. with me. You're you're doing a good job guiding because I'm having <laughs> little little inputs every every step of the way. Little tiny epiphanies going. Yeah. Oh, I know. I yep. know the thing. One one good of job. them that I didn't get to say because you blasted through it so <laughs> well um, was if you ever see a language that is really swirly, like mm -hmm. just in general has a lot of curves, not a lot of straight lines. That's indicative of a writing system that evolved on leaves. Because when uh, cultures would start writing on, you know, big, you know, flat surface leaves, if you ever try and write a straight line on a leaf due to the structure of the biology of the leaf, mm -hmm. it'll tear. Yeah. So if you see languages that have a lot of swirls and not many straight lines, if any, that's how their language evolved because it was how they had to adapt their writing to the um, – to the medium they were writing on. Yeah. Okay. So to round off my dive into the history of books, I want to quickly mention some of the more interesting, really old books that exist out there. Most of us have probably already heard of the Gutenberg Bible, which is the world's oldest mechanically printed book. The first copies were printed by Johannes Gutenberg between 1454 and 1455 CE. There are 48 original copies that are still known to exist, and 21 of those are actually complete copies. If you want to see one, you can actually find the first copy that was brought to the U.S. at the New York Public Library. Um, and I'm pretty sure it's on display. So next is the Celtic Psalter, known as the Scottish Book of Kells. The pocket-sized Book of Psalm is thought to have been created in the 11th century AD, making it Scotland's oldest surviving book, and it's housed at the University of Edinburgh, where it went on public display in 2009 for the first time. I hope it's still there, because now I want to see it. Uh -huh. <laughs> so then, as some of us have probably heard of, the Book of Kells is an incredibly ornate, illuminated manuscript, which is written in Latin, containing the four Gospels of the New Testament, and it's thought to have been created by Celtic monks around 800 CE. So 2013 brought us the discovery of the Siddur, a Jewish prayer book that dates back to around 840 AD. And the complete parchment, still in its original binding, is so old that it actually contains Babylonian vowel pointing, which is similar to how, like, old or Middle English for English language. Mm. So, like, a really old form of this particular language. So Europe's oldest known surviving intact book is the St. Cuthbert Gospel. This book was buried with St. Cuthbert, an early British Christian leader, on the island of Lindisfarne off North Northumberland around 698 AD. 
Only just surviving the Viking conquest, the book was moved to Durham to avoid Viking raiders and narrowly escaped being completely destroyed. The book was again rediscovered in 1104 AD and actually has an inscription added on the inside cover about its rediscovery. So, like, the people who rediscovered it made, like, a little note on the inside, too, which is kind of cute. Interesting. Yeah. Um, The Nag Hammadi Library is considered to be some of the oldest surviving bound books. It has 13 leather-bound papyrus codices, which were discovered in 1945, as they had been buried inside a sealed jar, which was discovered by a local man in the town of Nag Hammadi in Upper Egypt. The book's contained Gnostic texts are dated from around the first half of the 4th century CEE. Written in the Coptic language, the codices are thought to have been copied from Greek, which is kind of cool. So that, like... Blending. Yeah, blending of language and, like, moving of cultures and stuff. So if you're like me and you think that books are worth their weight in gold, then you might be interested in these next two. The Pyrigi gold tablets were three gold plates that were found in 1964 during an excavation of a sanctuary in ancient Pyrigi, Italy, dating back to 500 BC. They contain holes around the edges, um, which makes scholars think that they were probably bound at one point. So making a book. Two of these plates are written in an Etruscan text, while one is written in Phoenician, uh, compromising a dedication from King Thefari Velianus to the Phoenician goddess Astarte. Uh, Similarly, the Etruscan Gold Book, or the Golden Orphism Book, is thought to be the oldest multi-page book in the world, dating to about 660 BC. Discovered in 1955 in Struma, Bulgaria, the book is made from six sheets of 24-karat gold bound together with rings. Whoa. Yeah. Um, Illustrations of priests, a horse rider, a mermaid, a harp and soldiers, as well as writing in Etruscan, hint at the burial process of an aristocrat Aristocrat. <laughs> I watch too much Disney, guys. Everybody, everybody, everybody wants to be a guy. All right, too much. We're we're infringing on copyright territory. No, it's our own voices. We're fine. Yeah. Um, so, so uh, these very cool things hint at the burial process of an aristocrat. Devoted to the cult of Orphism. I was so ready for you to say Aristocat again. I know. I had to very carefully make sure the, I saw the, the R. The strain on Kylie's <laughs> face as she went to produce, produce that one word again. Aristocrat. There, there you go. go. Um, and I did not look into what the cult of, cult of Orphism is, but I can only guess it has something to do with Orpheus. I don't know. Most likely. Yep. This was found when a tomb was inadvertently opened during construction of a canal. The book can be seen by the public in the National Historical Museum in Sofia. And that is my story of the oldest dated book, The Diamond Sutra, and some other very cool books of history. Wow, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, Talking about writing and books and all that stuff. Yeah, because books are my favorite thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also, uh, you know, not not one of our fun facts that come up after this call to action that we're about to do, but a fun fact that is recently occurring is the Library of Congress is starting to petition to find out which podcasts are culturally significant for permanent archival. So podcasts are being considered a, you know, a, a full media, uh, you know, medium. Yeah, I mean, uh, they they record and or they they hold recordings of like movies and TV shows and that kind of thing. Yep. So it makes sense that something as prolific as podcasting and you know has become such a big part of society and stuff would be 
would be something that would be included. We aren't going to be included, but we can dream big. Maybe someday. We can dream big. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you all for listening. Um, you can find all of our stuff at halfwitpodcast.com. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, that includes everything. There's a merch store. There's our Ko-Fi if you'd like to support us monetarily. Yes. You can go to our Twitter. Our pinned tweet is a way that you can submit topic suggestions to us. And when you do that, we'll find out what day they occur for you. Don't worry about it. Don't yeah. try and time it. Just yeah. send us what you want to learn about. And, and we will we'll find a way to fit it in. Yep. Yeah. So we've yeah. already done that a few times. It yeah. was... Um, what was it? D.B. Cooper was Cooper, one of them. Um, and then... The um, Symphony Fantastique yeah. was another one. Yep. Yep. So those are the two. I think we have one. We have one waiting. waiting. I think it's for yeah. end of this year is yeah. when we're going to be doing it. I think so. Yeah. So yeah. Have, give us topics. We'd love to really be able to cover like what you guys want to hear. So yeah. And you can also email us at halfwitpod at gmail.com. Yep. I think we forgot to mention that a few times. Probably. Uh-huh. <laughs> Anyways, thank you to the fishermen for our theme song, Another Day. You can find a link to their SoundCloud down in our show notes. Way down. Yeah. Not really that far down. Just just right below where you hit play. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Not too far below. No. <laughs> okay, so is it fun fact time? It is now Huzzah. fun fact time. Woohoo. What you gonna hit me with? Hmm. Well, don't actually hit me, please. I'm gonna hit you. Oh. I'm gonna throw this tablet that you handed oh, me. Oh, no. <laughs> that seems mean and cruel. Ha ha ha. Tablet, but it's not clay. Ha ha. I ha. hate myself. I'm sorry. <laughs> if I hit this hard enough into the ground, it will eventually become clay again. It'll be a brick. Uh-huh. Yuck. Jesus. <laughs> that. Oh. That hit me too late. <laughs> Anyways. You hate me. It's fine. I'm going to go with on May 9th of 1962, a laser beam was successfully bounced off the moon for the very first time. Cool. Now we can start using lasers to write on the moon and the moon will be a book. Oh. That's oh what we're dear. aiming for, right? Um, I don't I don't think so. Why not? That seems destructive. <laughs> Engrave all of humanity on the moon. Yikes. I'm going to tie it into my current my 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 current topic on May 8th, 1835, the first installment of Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tales was published by C.A. Retzel in Copenhagen, Denmark. Hey! It's a book! It's a book. It's a book. It's fiction. Love it. Yay. Yeah. Well, I think that's all we got for you today. So thank you all for listening. And as always, I'm your halfwit. And I'm your historian. And we hope you listen next time. Bye.